Welcome to Dairy Stream, brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, sister organizations that fight for sensible dairy policy in Wisconsin and Washington, D.C. Dairy Stream focuses on issues affecting the dairy community and our customers. Hi, I'm your host, Mike Austin. Well, the evolution of genetics has certainly played a huge role in the productivity of our nation's dairy herds. And that's where we're going to focus on today as we're spending time with Dr. Mitch Hockett, Technical and Sales Service Manager for ST Genetics. And if we can, Mitch, let's start kind of with the basics. Uh, This is going to be kind of a learning experience for a lot of us, a subject I know that's important to all in production agriculture, but maybe we're not as well versed as we want to be, especially in the topic you're going to focus in on today as we talk about both environmental goals and economic goals and how we're going to help farmers reach those on their own operations. But as I said, going back to the basics, can you explain heterosis or sometimes also referred to as hybrid vigor, what that really means? Sure, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with you today. When we talk about crossbreeding, the term heterosis gets used a lot. Really, if you define that, it, it most people would say, or you'd see it in the dictionary as hybrid vigor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I think about it is when you bring two things together and the sum is greater than the parts, kind of like uh, synergy would also be a word that's used a lot. That's that's typically what hybrid vigor is. So uh, having, uh, say, the genes of a Holstein and a Jersey, in this case, if we're talking about crossbreeding, as an example, you bring those two breeds together, uh, a heterosis positive effect would be that, you know, you get some traits from each of those and the combination of the genes from those two uh, being heterozygous at a lot of different genes is greater uh, as a whole than either one of the breeds individually. So what about the term people hear this a lot, you know, F1 crosses? I mean, what really is an F1 cross? That is the the first cross when you're making a crossbreeding uh, decision and you take two breeds that first cross, the output is is called the F1. It's that first generation. And when we think through crossbreeding schemes, people are very interested in what do you do with your F1s? That's a question you hear a lot in the field, to be honest. Through the years, people have taken lots of different approaches to crossbreeding, and and most of them are are really the differentiator between them or uh, in how you're managing those F1s, that first generation. What are you using for the next generation to create the F2s? So uh, that's the significance of that F1 term. And I know that's a question farther down the line, but since you brought up, we might as well just address that right away. I mean, if I'm a producer, you know, what do I do with the next generation after the F1? You know, there's there's lots of plans out there and they they each probably have some strengths and they each probably have some weaknesses. What typically has been done isn't what we're currently uh, pushing from a, a research and development standpoint with NST. Uh, we are currently marketing and, and pushing a program that we have named Stamina playing on the word that, you know, we we are creating hybrid vigor and more stamina in uh, the future animals resulting from this program. But the the goal actually is to manage and capitalize on heterosis long-term where we continuously breed F1 animals or almost create a new breed where we're using F1 bulls generationally over and over again on uh, cross animals to try to maintain a 50-50 average split between Holstein and Jersey genetics 
whereas a lot of crossbreeding plans, you may uh, back cross to one of the parent breeds. So you may take the F1 and breed it back to a Holstein and breed it back to a Jersey. The problem with those programs is you end up with a lot of variability in the herd. And so you may have different lactation animals that look different in size, in performance, in production, which makes managing them really difficult. Uh, and to simplify and, and reduce complexity in this type of program, you're constantly using the same type of bull, same genetics, and you don't have to try to determine, you know, what sire breed am I going to use next on each individual cow. Uh, so there's a lot more accuracy and simplicity uh, that allows for more adherence to protocols, and we think more uniformity in future generations. So to clarify, you're using these F1 bulls basically to have a stability throughout the herd, and you're doing these from one generation to the next generation? That's correct, Mike. Okay. So uh, I would say the example, if if you took a F1 that was roughly 50% Holstein and 50% Jersey, which in reality in genetics, it, it seems that way on paper, but it doesn't really work that way in genetics. So uh, we can have more genes inherited from one breed or the other, but let's for example, sake, say we have a, an animal that's represented by 50% genes of a Holstein and 50% of a Jersey. Mm -hmm. If you back cross to a Holstein, then the that resulting calf is going to be getting 50% of its genetics from the Holstein. 50% are coming from the cross, so that's basically a 50-50 split. So we're going to end up with an animal that's more in line with a 75% Holstein, 25% Jersey. So every generation, when we make that choice, we're bouncing back and forth rather than maintaining near that 50-50 what was considered the, the more ideal representation of both breeds to maximize heterosis. So uh, in this type of program, if you continuously use F1 bulls that are being created from the best genetics available in the Holstein and the best genetics available in the Jersey, we believe we can make the most genetic progress in our sire lineup because we're taking advantage of the progress by both of those breeds. Uh, and then we're constantly filtering those genes into this F1 program uh, and maintaining a near 50-50 representation of the Holstein and the Jersey genetics. Well, I appreciate that clarification. You're listening to the voice of Dr. Mitch Hockett. He's the technical and sales service manager for ST Genetics. We're talking about uh, genetics and how it can help your farm reach environmental and economic goals. And we'll get into the environmental thing in just a moment. But on one more question, because again, my knowledge is not real solid here, even in the history and the longevity of this. But do you have, when we get back to the uh, F1 bulls, do you have a variety? Are you building up a stable that I have some selection available there? We launched this program in 2021. We've seen at, at the beginning, we brought in about 10 bulls that we've been uh, collecting, have data in the field. Calves are on the ground from uh, F1 bulls used on F1 cows. Uh, so we have F2s in the program that have been born and now we've grown that stable of bulls to near 20. Oh, okay. So there's plenty of production available. What we've seen in the field is extremely high fertility. And from the calves that have resulted, we're seeing uh, greater livability than we were in, in uh, similar herds that used to be Jersey. Uh, so the, the net impact of that hybrid vigor has been greater livability in the calves, which has been a real pickup. 
Well, Mitch, don't mind if we can get a little bit more into specifics here. Can you share from your own experiences, you know, some examples of what you've seen so far with implementing a crossbreeding program? Yes, sir. I think the, the biggest thing for me is the uniformity that is resulting. Uh, when we look at pins of heifers and the heifer uh, feedlot that have resulted from this type of program, uh, the uniformity is pretty astounding. Like uh, we, we may often see uh, crossbreeding herds that have used other schemes where, you know, the crosses, they look at them and they say, well, this one looks like a Holstein, so let's use a Jersey sire, or this one looks more like a Jersey, so let's use a Holstein sire. Or even if they're trying to use their uh, herd management platform to manage that, we see a lot of inaccuracy in those protocols, and often the wrong sire gets used. But regardless, we're seeing this bounce back and forth in the percentage of predominance of Holstein or Jersey which leads to a lack of uniformity in the pins. And in this type of program where you're constantly maintaining near a 50-50 representation of Holstein and Jersey genetics, the uniformity is probably the most striking part when you look at pins of heifers that have resulted. Well, Mitch, certainly you have painted a, a bright picture and some positive results, but as a producer, I mean, you might have some questions here, and their biggest one might be, well, okay, it, it sounds very positive, but what kind of challenges do I need to be prepared for, and what kind of challenges have you discovered? Well, I think the biggest challenge, as we are a genetics company and we are in sales, probably the biggest challenge for us is that we, we just can't generate generational data fast enough. It mm -hmm. takes a long time to generate generational data. So one of the questions we get a lot is how are the F2s going to milk? Uh, right. What's going to happen in the third generation? Well, it takes time to develop uh, those types of data sets. But honestly, what we've seen so far as we're developing a genomic test simultaneously to, to do a analysis of, of the genetic profile of these animals, and we're creating a database that would allow us to compare those against contemporaries that are F1s, rather than comparing on a Holstein base or a Jersey base, we, we can get a better understanding of how they compare to population of animals that looks like them. So we're, we're creating all of that as we go. And so far, all of the data are pointing in the right direction where the F2s that have resulted in this type of program are actually closer to 50-50 representation of genes from Holstein and Jersey than the F1s were. So we're moving more towards where we want to be. We're seeing uniformity in the early part of their life. So far, we've seen increased livability. So that's a positive. And we just need time really to, to see how they're going to perform as they uh, work through uh, lactations. But all of the directional information is pointed towards positive. And you said you are doing genomic testing as well? We are. So that's not a commercially available test, but uh, uh, on the R&D side, we are genomic testing these animals and we're developing a, a uh, way to analyze them so we can understand more the genetics by descent, where they're coming from. If, if they're coming from the Holstein or they're coming from the Jersey, rather than uh, on paper, we would just assume that they're getting half from each, but that's not really how genetics work. So we're developing a lot of that internally at the same time. Um, but we can see the breed representation quite well and, and have a good understanding of where uh, or the percentage of genes that are represented in animals to know that we're getting near that 50-50 split uh, between the two, which is helping us maintain that hybrid vigor that we talked about earlier. 
And that's the question I want to go back to, because obviously my broadcast brain never took much math. So I'm trying to make everything get quite uh, right here when we talk about this. But maybe you could explain as briefly as you can, why would I be more optimistic or feel that an F2 would be closer to that 50-50 split than the original F1? Well, that's a good question. So if you uh, you mentioned earlier uh, today that to me that you had seven grandkids. Right. So if you looked at your children, you might see that some of those look more similar to you than others, or maybe they look more similar to uh, uh, their mom than others. And, and that just kind of tells the story that we inherit a different amount of genetics from the father and the mother. So Every mating doesn't lead to the same. We look at the combination of genes. Uh, it can look different. So that first cross, the F1, we may see in a Holstein Jersey cross, for instance, that an animal may have 60% inherited from the Holstein and 40 from the Jersey, where the next calf born may have 40% inherited from the Holstein and 60% from the Jersey. Uh, but when we come back on those, they're starting at a point that 60-40 or 40-60 is irrelevant. But when we put an animal, a bull, from the F1 stamina program on top of those that is 50-50, we find that we're moving the average closer to that center point of 50-50. Makes sense. Also, now I understand why five of those seven grandkids that look more like grandma than grandpa are happier in life. So that, that clarifies that as well. <laughs> Our guest again, Dr. Mitch Hockett, technical and sales service manager with ST Genetics. We are talking about uh, how genetics can help your farm reach environmental and economic goals. And I've yet really to ask you to focus in on that. So from that perspective, Mitch, how can genetics support a farm's sustainability goals? You know, sustainability is one of those terms that I think it's important we define first. So okay. uh, I've uh, in academia when I, I used to be a professor and, and I would say that if we ask 10 people, what is sustainability? Even in academic circles, you might get, you know, five, 10 different answers. I think for the purpose of the dis this discussion and, and dairy farming in general, moving forward from, from where we have been to where we're going, we're talking about doing equal or more with less. So producing as much or more, uh, whether that's milk or solids, probably solids in the future, but doing it with less resources. In this case, we know that Farmland is, you know, tillable land is being removed and taken into development at an alarming rate. Drought is uh, abundant, so water resources are also declining. So we have probably two of our more precious resources in land and water uh, on the decline. And so we have to be able yet to feed a growing number of people on the planet. So we need more output. Uh, dairy demand, uh, dairy product demand has actually increased over the past uh, multiple decades. While fluid milk may be decreasing, we see that people are eating more dairy products. So whether that's in the form of uh, butter or cheese or uh, other newer types of products like yogurts, we're seeing an increase of that. We have seen that over the past several decades. So we need to produce more and we've got less to do it with. So sustainability, in this case, we can use genetics to to achieve that. We know that we've bred animals for a long time uh, to produce more milk, more fat, more protein. All of that helps with sustainability. If we have one animal that produces more than another animal, but they have the same input cost to grow to that first calving, then that's more efficient. But 
now we can start really honing in and we, we breed things now into our animals like productive life. How long are they living in a productive format? How many months of production do we get out of them? And so we know that as an animal matures, it goes from first lactation to second, we get a bump in milk production that should be 10 to 20%. Mm -hmm. So having an animal live longer adds to their efficiency. We get more milk just out of the, the greater maturity. And so we want more generations from our animals because that makes them more efficient. We can spread that raising cost, the rearing cost for the first two years over a greater lifespan of production. That adds to sustainability. But now what we've been focusing on as a company is uh, breeding in genetics for how they're utilizing the nutrients, uh, those resources that are limited, the feed, the water. And so we've developed a trait called EcoFeed, uh, where we're looking at the residual feed intake. And, and that's a confusing term, but animals are expected to eat a certain amount for a certain level of production. Mm -hmm. It's like if I were going to work a 12-hour day, I would probably need a certain amount of nutrients to do it. Some people are really efficient and can do it with less than I can. <laughs> um, <laughs> in the dairy world, we have cows that can grow at a rate we would expect or a faster rate than we would expect with fewer nutrients. And so we've spent a lot of time in our research program measuring feed intake of animals uh, or progeny groups from our sire lineup to understand what sires bring those genetics to the population. Now we've also learned that there are certain ones that bring that to milk production. We're looking at this across the board, even into beef production, because we see that there are genes there too that enable animals to more efficiently use nutrients. And, and the, the short version of this is that there are genes out there that allow animals to eat less than they normally would need to. So they use less of those dwindling resources to have a certain level of performance. And that's a great thing. It's a great thing for the environment. It's a great thing for what our consumers are demanding uh, in messaging for sustainability and efficiency. But it's also great for the dairy farmers because it's good for their pocketbook. Uh, and, and like I mentioned before, it's good for the environment. We also know that cows that eat less uh, tend to have lower water requirements. So those two things can go hand in hand. Uh, they also tend to have lower methane emissions. And we've all heard about this. Uh, we see it on social media, a lot of discussion about methane. And this is one way that the agricultural community can make an impact. So we can breed for genetics that make animals more efficient. And the byproduct of that is that there are lower methane emissions and they're more carbon neutral. Well, thank you very much for that very thorough answer. That is uh, Dr. Mitch Hockett, Technical and Sales Service Manager for ST Genetics. And we're going to be taking a break in just a moment. But before we do, you mentioned a little bit about time. And a lot of us do kind of measure things in timeline. So in closing, again, from your perspective, how long will it take to transition the herd and see some kind of sustainability results due to genetics? That's a good question, Mike. And it really... It isn't an easy one to answer because it's, uh, I think we can see an impact in the first generation. But if you're transitioning a herd to a crossbreeding type program, it really, you know, depends on where your starting point is. If you're starting with a purebred herd of Holsteins or Jerseys, the, the fastest way, in my mind, the, the most economical way too, to do that is to start with, uh, if you're starting with a Holstein herd, use the best Jersey sires. Uh, that are available. If you're starting with the Jersey herd, use the best Holstein sires that are available. 
that will enable you to make the most genetic progress in that first generation, but it gets you to that F1 as fast as possible. Uh, and then from that point forward, you may choose to use a program like our stamina program to maintain that F1 breeding representation. And I think that that is probably the most economical and the best path forward for folks that are thinking of going from a purebred uh, dairy situation to a crossbred uh, situation to take advantage of that heterosis. How genetics can help your farm reach environmental and economic goals. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Mitch Hockett, technical and sales service manager from ST Genetics. We continue here on Dairy Stream. And we'll be right back with our Dairy Stream podcast after we hear from our sponsor. With high genetics and optimal efficiency, dairies are creating a sustainable future. That's why ST Genetics partnered with dairy men and women to manage their female inventory and create only the most sustainable replacements. Through genomic testing, beef on dairy, and genetics focused on net merit and ecofeed, ST offers solutions to create sustainable and profitable futures. Visit stgen.com to learn more. The best way to predict the future is to create it. Well, Dairy Stream is brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative. Today, we're talking about how genetics can help your farm reach environmental and economic goals. And our expert today that's given us some great insights thus far is Dr. Mitch Hockett, Technical and Sales Service Manager for ST Genetics. During the first part of our podcast, we really kind of did some definitions, explanations, and talked about environmental goals. Now we're getting down to the dollars and cents of the project, and that is your economic goals. And let's start there, Mitch. Uh, how can genetics really help a farm economically? And maybe you can share a couple of examples in, in kind of explaining how. Sure, Mike. I think that from a genetic standpoint, we got to first understand what what is the thing that the dairy prizes the most? What What gets them their revenue? And we know that most of our producers out there are in a, a solids-based market where they're getting a premium for fat and protein. Some of my colleagues down here in the southeast may be in a fluid milk market and not receive any sort of bonus for protein. So that would tell us that all dairies aren't the same. Mm -hmm. uh, they may be rewarded differently. So we have to understand that there's not one program that works for everybody. But for those that are incentivized tremendously for fat and protein, uh, and even some that are, you know, with, with today's hauling bills, we, we don't really want to be shipping a lot of water down the road unless you're in a fluid-based market, which is upside down for them. They would want to be shipping that water down the road. But in the solids-based markets, we really want to focus on solids. We want to focus on reducing that volume and increasing the concentration of fat and protein. So we talk about protein uh, percentage or fat percentage. Those become very important. We also want to consider the efficiency to do that. So feed efficiency has become a buzzword in the industry. We can make animals more feed efficient in several ways. We can reduce their maintenance costs uh, by making them smaller in general, mm -hmm. uh, particularly speaking of Holsteins. But there are also genetics that we've discussed earlier that lead to feed efficiency as well. And we want to be making progress on both of those simultaneously. So we can focus on a trait like body weight composite that is used in some of our, our merit indices that CDCB and others publish. Those are important. Uh, they help reduce the mature size of an animal. 
But we also need to be really focused on as much direct selection as we can for feed efficiency. And that's where a trait like uh, EcoFeed that, that we publish becomes very important. Uh, those help reduce our feed costs. We know that's the biggest cost of the dairy, making up over 50, probably 52, 53% of their costs uh, to make milk. So we want to reduce that as much as possible. And then I think selecting for genetics that increase the productive life of the animal is are just terribly important. We can do that indirectly by selecting for a trait like productive life or directly by selecting for all the different things that impact that trait. So uh, we know that animals that are more fertile have a longer life, or if they have less laminitis, they have a longer life. So a lot of those things we can also select for and our programs do enable us to do both simultaneously. So that's good. Increased longevity is a great thing uh, for uh, efficiency and return on investment. And that is the next obvious topic then, because that's the buzz letters that people like to use today is the ROI. So in looking at this, what are you learning as far as the return on investment for these improved genetics and going this direction uh, in genetics? Sure. So ROI, as we know, return on investment, the investment into a program like this is is really no different than any other program, a crossbreeding program uh, or a genetic program of any type. Really, the main investment is in the genetics that you're you're buying to put onto your herd. Right. And in a crossbreeding scenario, the return is really going to be different and driven by you know what you. Uh, have been experiencing. So for instance, if you've been a Holstein herd and you're in a solids-based uh, incentivized market, then we go to a cross herd, an F1 or a stamina-based type program, we should get our return because we are decreasing the size of the animals. That should come uh, with an advantage in maintenance costs. We are seeing increased solids and decreased volume of milk. So that should reduce our shipping costs while at the same time increasing the incentives we're getting from fat and protein. We see a big pickup in fertility of those crosses. That hybrid vigor comes through especially well when we look at fertility and longevity of the stamina uh, or the, those crosses versus the purebred Holstein. If we're starting with a jersey, uh, we also see some advantages. I've mentioned the livability of the calves. We know that Jersey calves, uh, I, I heard a joke once that Jersey calves were, were born looking for a place to die, and that's a horrible <laughs> joke. Uh, yeah. The point is that they, they, uh, they really are not uh, great at withstanding tough environmental conditions with their small body size. And uh, what we've seen in these crossbreeding programs is that we really do add um, great livability to those calves. They're more hardy, they're more thrifty, uh, and don't come with the same challenges that that parent breed would. We're also seeing a larger volume uh, of solids and protein uh, and fat coming from those F1s. Um, and that's a, a, a great advantage over the jerseys as well. And then with the increased frame size, uh, one of the things that often goes unnoticed is that when we get to the end of the animal's productive life uh, and they enter the food chain for beef, additional total body size comes with an advantage in the price that we receive for those animals at, at that time. So uh, those are some of the places where we get a big return on investment. 
Again, you're listening to the voice of Dr. Mitch Hockett, Technical and Sales Service Manager at ST Genetics, and we are talking about how genetics can help your farm reach environmental and economic goals, and we're looking specifically now on those economic goals, and I don't know, uh, in this case, Mitch, are we talking about, I mean, is this a matter of the producer's own personal preference, or is there really some difference in this? And what I'm talking about, is it in the farmer's really best interest to diversify the genetic makeup of the herd or to follow one cross-beating plan? I mean, are, is there a benefit in one over the other, or is it just their own personal preference? Yeah, Mike, I think there's going to be a different situation, a different answer for all dairy farmers. But I've heard it, it broken down in terms of intensive agriculture versus extensive agriculture. Meaning? Uh, we know that, well, some some folks have different resources available to them that right. enable or, uh, in this case, push them to farm in a different way. So. For instance, if you have limited land and and water uh, and you're having to, let's say, buy your feed and those sorts of situations or restraints are put on you, then you have maybe a more intensive uh, approach. If you have, you know, land is plentiful and other things are limited, then you may have a more extensive approach. I think that in this case, we see that in crossbreeding, herds where that is the the chosen plan people tend to not be pushing for uh, extreme amounts of volume of milk uh, fluid milk, okay. and they're more interested in maintaining the longevity of the herd so that they get many many generations out of them even if it comes with a lower volume of, of milk uh, particularly being important to them is that they're they're not having to replace the animals as frequently so they're reducing their cost of production just because they're they're re- reduce their culling rate mm-hmm. and getting those additional uh, productive life uh, months or or even lactations out of the animals well, thanks for clarifying that. I think that cleared up a couple of questions some listeners might be having. Again, you're listening to Dairy Stream. Our guest is Dr. Mitch Hockett, Technical and Sales Service Manager for ST Genetics. And earlier in our podcast, you talked a little bit about uh, the crossbreeding also getting involved in the beef industry. And there are some dairy producers that are also dabbling into beef. So uh, do dairy cows and beef animals follow a similar plan or are they both rather unique to that breed? You know, it's it's interesting. I, I like that you use the term dabbling, but I'm going to mm. push you on that one and say that this is actually becoming the norm. Uh, it really is. U.S. Huh? dairy herd. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing. You know, when, when a tool like sex sorted semen first came on the market, it didn't have a lot of receptivity because conception rates were low. But as the tool got better, it started being used more and heifers had a lot of value. So people used it a lot. And then Next thing you know, we're we're almost overproducing heifers, and the the value of heifers dropped tremendously. Right. And what's happened over time is that, you know, all, you know, if given a hammer, all problems look like a nail. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that uh, what we've learned over time is that there is a place for sex sorted semen, as it's gotten better and better uh, and more com- competitive with conventional semen, we've learned that we can use that to dial in and produce a specific number of heifers that are really needed from the farm. And that tool by itself has enabled us to have the opportunity to use the rest of the herd 
to produce a higher quality beef product that brings more value to the farm. So this, what we have really seen and heard termed in the, in the industry as a sex and beef model, which really means a sex sorted semen to use uh, on your top end of the herd to, to make as much genetic progress as possible, create the right amount of heifers, and then use beef on everything else so that you're making the most viable pregnancy in every other animal that's on the farm. That actually leads to the greatest revenue generation for the farm from both sides of that equation. So I would say that in these crossbreeding programs or in purebred farms, that is becoming the norm. We see tremendous value on those uh, beef dairy crosses, which are truly an F1, as you mentioned. Right, yeah. Um, we, we see that those have tremendous value compared to the, the straight dairy bull counter type, especially in our color breed. So a Jersey bull calf has very little value. Um, but when we put a, a beef cross on that cow, we can create more value. Same thing with Holsteins. If we can make a, a, a black-hided beef cross calf that has the right genetics that can perform at the level that the beef industry needs to fit retailer needs and demand, then those have tremendous value in the food chain. Okay, yeah. So if you're looking at opportunities for producers and really a growth area that's going to have a consumer demand, this might be what we really are watching in the next, what, five, 10 years? It is. It's it's grown so fast that uh, our beef semen sales into the dairy segment have skyrocketed uh, just over the past five years. And I think that trend is going to continue to grow. Uh, but our largest, most progressive dairies are almost entirely using sex-sorted semen and beef semen and even a sex-sorted beef semen uh, because we do know that steers are, are more efficient than heifers. They have more muscle. They grow faster. There's lots of advantages to them. So we're seeing some that are choosing a sex-sorted dairy heifer semen uh, and a sexed male beef semen uh, product to try to capitalize on the revenue coming in from both sides. Opportunities for sure. And yeah, thanks for that clarification and kind of giving us an optimistic move of where we're seeing there. Although I am disappointed, I just realized that you use two B's in spelling dabbling and now I don't need that word anymore. So, but anyways, <laughs> let's move on to our final question. It's been a lot of fun and certainly very informative to be with Dr. Mitch Hockett, a technical and sales service manager for ST Genetics. And that is to kind of have you bring out the uh, magic eight ball or crystal ball or whatever you'd like to use. We're not going to hold you to this, but just in your opinion, where you think we're trending? What are some of the predictions you feel we may be seeing in dairy genetics in the next 5, 10, 15 years? Well, I think that we, we try to be responsive to changes that we see uh, coming to us in the next 5 to 10 years in a production setting. So my hunch is, and this is a hunch, my my eight ball, uh, maybe not as magical, but I think it, it would tell me that uh, we are going to continue to see dwindling resources in land and water. Mm -hmm. um, we will probably see more regulations on antimicrobial resistance mm -hmm. and how we're using tools like antimicrobials. And so those combined uh, winds of change would, would say that we will probably see a continued trend of looking for and identifying, selecting, and, and propagating genetics that enable health, particularly resistance to disease, to be more proactive rather than reactive 
It's always better to prevent the disease from happening than to treat it after it happens. Uh, we know that disease robs an animal's ability to express the genetics that are there and, and often removes a lot of that return on investment that we discussed. So identifying, propagating those genes, continuing to identify and propagate uh, genetics for efficiencies so that we can really capitalize on the genetics that are there with fewer resources and be more sustainable in our approach. I think those are easy things, uh, really just take decision-making. There are decisions that can be made that uh, there are just very few, really, decisions that we can make on a dairy that drive both what the consumer wants, but also drive uh, revenue and, and profit into the dairy's pocket. And this is one of those things that's really easy to do, uh, and it fits what everybody needs. So everybody wins. Well, Dr. Hockett, certainly appreciate all your time and insights and information. We were just looking for a few items to chew on, and you gave us a seven-course meal when it comes to genetics as far as where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. And really uh, makes you feel good about what's going to be happening in the dairy and the beef industry as we move down the road. Again, with a lot of gratitude to Dr. Mitch Hockett. Technical and Sales Service Manager, ST Genetics. We thank him for being with us on today's version of Dairy Stream. Also, a big thank you has to go out to Miss Versatility over there. She's our producer, editor, Joanna Guza, who does so much to make uh, Dairy Stream well worth you listening to. And we want to thank you, our listeners, for your time and input in helping us to continually improve our end product as we try to make Dairy Stream worth your time and effort. I'm Mike Austin. Until we talk again, thanks for listening to Dairy Stream. The Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative would like to thank you for listening to Dairy Stream. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please subscribe and rate Dairy Stream. We value your feedback. And if there's something you'd like to hear, just email us, podcast at dairyforward.com.